Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 78, A New Frontier. First, as always, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Stefan Vladimirov. Thanks so much, Stefan. Also, another quick note, I mentioned it last time, but it's now officially launched. There is a Bulgarian language version of the podcast. Now, I just put it up yesterday, and so I'm still waiting for iTunes to accept it, and so it's going to probably take a few days to get uploaded to the various podcast players and things. But for now, if you want to find it, Go to the website, go to Episodi in Bulgarian at the top, and you can stream it through SoundCloud there if you just can't wait for it to get to your favorite podcast player. So check that out. It's something I've wanted to do for so many years. And fortunately, I found a great partner to work on it with my friend Georgi Kolev, uh, who I know from the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. Check it out. I've got links to it on a bunch of our episodes with kind of corresponding content from theirs. And yeah, that's about it. So If you're a Bulgarian language speaker or if you'd like to practice your Bulgarian, check it out. Okay, so quick note. Last time, I forgot to mention the construction of the Church of the Seven Saints. I wanted to talk about this and somehow it just totally slipped my mind. So the construction of the Kocha Mehmed Pasha Mosque was ordered by Suleiman all the way back in 1528 with the aim of really outshining the churches of Sofia. It eventually came to be called the Black Mosque, owing to the dark granite of its minaret. But after Bulgarian independence in 1878, it was turned into a military storage facility and then eventually a prison, before ultimately, after a lot of kind of municipal debating over the issue, being converted into a church, which is why it is now the Church of the Seven Saints. It's been pretty well restored. It sits along Grafignatyev Street in a lovely little park, well, We'll see how lovely it is. Uh, It's in the middle of renovations, but that park has always been one of my favorite places to sit and have a coffee and enjoy the sunshine next to this really beautiful church. I recommend checking out if you're in Sofia. So you'll know the original building, 1528, from the era of Suleiman. All right. Last time, we saw the Ottomans finally break Hungary, leading to a prolonged war between two rival claimants to the throne. One a promised Ottoman vassal, and the other a member of the powerful Habsburg family. This led to two attempted sieges of Vienna, both of which failed, and ultimately war with the Safavid Persians, which brought an end to the conflict and the kind of settling into an uneasy peace as the Ottomans under Suleiman fight the Portuguese in India, the Safavids in Iraq, and this sort of little mini Cold War along the border, uh, this uneasy peace with the Habsburgs there, as well as some outright fighting with them in North Africa. So as the wars rage, the Ottomans sign a treaty with France, which has the potential to really challenge the Habsburgs in Central Europe, 
you know, the two front war, the classic fear of Germany and the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire are the closest we're going to get to Germany during this point. Uh, even though they're based in Vienna, I know, but still, you know, think of Germany's great fears in the 20th century. That's what they potentially face here. The big question is, can the Ottomans and the French pull this off? Or conversely, are we going to face the kind of similar slash opposite situation where the Habsburgs are trying to do the exact same thing to the Ottomans by getting them to fight the Safavids way off in Iraq, as well as the Habsburgs in Central Europe. So it's kind of this fight between two not very close alliances, both of which are trying to sort of destroy uh, the central partner with a two-front war. Well, for now, the war with the Safavids has really cooled down. Uh, it's still going on, technically. There's no peace treaty, but after kind of 1535, neither side is very active. So what we see here is that you know, Suleiman invades the Safavid Empire, uh, has some victories, but can't really land a, a kind of killing blow because the Shah has a scorched earth tactic kind of strategy, pulls back, and eventually Suleiman has to go home. And so this happens, and then the, the Shah of the Safavids never really goes on the offensive. And so the war just sort of goes back into like cryostasis, if you want to think about it that way. But the Ottomans are keeping up the pressure elsewhere. In 1536, the particular place where they're applying pressure, you could say, is in Croatia. And the reason was that Croatia had largely sided with the Habsburgs against the Ottoman-aligned kings of Polja. So, although peace had come to the Habsburgs and the Ottomans three years earlier, the Ottomans were still pretty angry at the Croatians and they weren't really a part of the peace, so they were going to get a beating. In 1536, the result of all this was the fall of the, of the fortress at Požega in Slavonia, which is the inland part of Croatia, where like Osijek is. But that same year, the Ottomans were also making an attempt to take a far more valuable prize, the Croatian fortress of Klis. Now, I mentioned it a bit before, but maybe you missed it, but the Ottomans have tried and failed to take Klis a lot. It hasn't always been really worth mentioning, but just to give you some perspective, whether or not they were major or minor attempts to take the fortress, the Ottomans tried in 1515, 1520, 1521, 1522, again in 1522, 1523, 1526, 1528, 1531, 1532, 1534, 1535, and 1536. So yeah, it was a big deal when they could finally take the fortress of Klis. Now, this was a big prize for Suleiman and allowed him to really put even more pressure on the Croatians because, as you can tell, they're really losing allies left and right. Uh, Venice and the Pope aren't really helping, and the Habsburgs have signed a peace with the Ottomans. And, of course, Hungary is no, no longer really there uh, to help them. And so Croatia's all on their own, and it's showing. And so... This latest siege of Cleese was actually the second attempt in the year of 1536, as I mentioned, they tried earlier. But this time, what was different about this particular siege was that the Habsburgs were distracted. Um, as you know, they were not really fighting or when they, they were a bit involved, but in Slavonia. As I mentioned, the Venetians and the Hungarians could provide no help. The Pope did send some money 
Ferdinand of the Habsburg sent a few soldiers, but really uh, the release force they were sent was defeated by the Ottomans. It had no real effect. And so by 1537, the defenders were running low on water. Their commander was dead. No reinforcements seemed likely. And so they surrendered. Now, with all these events still underway, Ferdinand assembled an army of 24,000 to move into Slavonia and retake the city of Osijek. However, the army was stricken by disease, suffered from poor supply lines, and was forced to turn back before it even reach, reached Osijek. Uh, for perspective, though, Osijek is far closer to Vienna than, say, Hungary is to Constantinople or even Sofia. So it's a little sad, you could say, that the uh, Habsburg army couldn't make it even that far, uh, that they were kind of stricken by disease, not even an enemy army. Um during the retreat, swamps then forced the army to abandon its artillery, and ultimately the commander basically abandoned uh, the rest of the army and just took the elite cavalry and left. The force that was left behind was about, well, pretty small, a few thousand, and was attacked and annihilated by a provincial Ottoman force of about 8,000. So, yeah, about 4,000 of the original 24,000 soldiers here made it back to Austria. So the defeat was all the more shocking for really how self-inflicted it was. Their aim wasn't a great one. They just wanted to retake Osijek, which is, was and remains a fairly minor city. Um, Austria and its Habsburg rulers had finally thrown together a proper army and gone on the offensive against the Ottomans, and the whole endeavor just collapsed in complete disarray, which was certainly a very bad omen, as the 43-year-old sultan still had plenty of fight left in him. Also, a quick note here, you may be wondering what happened to the peace that the Habsburgs and the Ottomans just signed? Well, as I mentioned, there was a lot of tension at the border, some little skirmishes, and really no one paid much attention to the peace. And so, war started again fairly shortly after. But anyways, in 1537 there was some good news for anti-Ottoman forces. A year earlier, France had invaded northern Italy. The plan was for the Ottomans to eventually invade the south of Italy as well. I mentioned these kind of plans for grand pincer movements. Um, well, the Ottomans did start this. They did have some landings in southern Italy that year. But, well, the Pope and the Habsburgs, we can imagine, were very freaked out by this. They were terrified of the idea of this sort of two-front Italian war. And Venice, for its part, was also extremely worried because, well, it wasn't used to having land armies get near its you know, home city. And the fall of Cleese made Venice's Dalmatian forces even more vulnerable to Ottoman troops. And so all of this just made Italy, the Pope, the Habsburgs, everyone really, really nervous, very worried about what the Ottomans were going to do next. But, well, fortunately for them, the Ottomans ultimately decided to move their focus from attacking southern Italy to laying siege to the Venetian-controlled island of Corfu. Suleiman landed there with 25,000 soldiers, kicking off the Third Ottoman-Venetian War. Now, for perspective, Corfu is at the sort of top left corner of Greece, uh, close to Albania, and kind of facing Italy. It's in the Ionian Sea, just so you can picture it. However, so Suleiman lands these 25,000 soldiers, but soon plague spreads, and Suleiman has to really abandon the whole endeavor. 
Still, there's now a new war going on, and so this sort of shifts around the European alliance system, leading France to break its Ottoman alliance and join the Venetians and the Habsburgs against the Ottomans in what was then called the Holy League. So clearly Suleiman made a bit of a blunder in just sort of attacking Venice out of nowhere. But, well, he's only 43. He's still very ambitious. There's not much to be done against the Safavids. You know, they're a bit boring to attack with these uh, scorched earth tactics. And plus, the Ottoman Empire, as we know, is not terribly, terribly interested in expanding east. You know, every time it makes big uh, expansion, kind of expansions to the east, it's generally some mixture of self-defense or just convenience. Um, you think about the defeat of the Mamluks, you think about the Akkoyunlu, you know, all the times the Ottomans really have to go east, it's because somebody made them do it. And so Suleiman, you know, he just had this peace and a little bit of war with the Habsburgs, but you know, what's he going to do against the Habsburgs? He had tried to attack uh, Vienna twice. It was a disaster. So he doesn't want to do that. He could go up north to say Poland and up there, but it's really much too far away. Uh, there, are, He's not that interested in that direction. You know, at this point, the Ottomans are really looking to Italy and Central Europe, not kind of Northeastern Europe. And so, well, he ran out of things to do, although probably he should have just kept it up with Italy. But anyways... The Ottoman failure at Corfu, as you can imagine, wasn't about to stop Suleiman. Within months, he, the, he and his forces had taken many other Aegean islands from Venice, as well as their final two settlements in mainland Greece. The Ottomans now effectively controlled the entire Aegean Sea, except for the island of Crete. In this context, in September of that year, a joint Holy Alliance fleet met a smaller but still quite formidable Ottoman fleet in the Ionian Sea, and the result was a complete Ottoman victory, owed partly to the Holy League commander being really hesitant about fully committing his superior forces. So, the result, looking at all these things together, is that, well, as I mentioned, the Ottomans really control the Aegean Sea and Greece. And so, kind of the last remnants of Christian control of what used to be really core territories of the Byzantine Empire is now over, done with. All that's left is Crete, and Crete is a bit, well, on the periphery, we could say. So also around that time, the Ottomans and the Gujarat Sultanate, based in northern India, together tried and failed to take the Portuguese fortress of Diu in India. So while the Ottomans were sort of winning off in the Mediterranean, they were failing to prevent the expanding power of Portugal from establishing itself further in the Indian Ocean. And this really began a period of more active conflict between the two powers. Remember, if you'll recall, uh, the, the Mamluks were really trying to push back the Portuguese expansion into the Indian Ocean because, well, if you controlled Egypt, you controlled the spice, the trade routes from India into the Mediterranean and Europe. And those were extremely lucrative. And so once Portugal started going around uh, the Cape of Good Hope, around Africa, this really challenged the Mamluks' economic superiority. But then, once the Ottomans destroyed the Mamluks, this gave Portugal a few years to really push their, you know, push their luck, push themselves further into the Indian Ocean before the Ottomans could get their act together. And so now what we're seeing is the Ottomans are trying to really reestablish a, a, a strong kind of Islamic presence in the Indian Ocean and really push back the Portuguese for 
what is essentially the exact same reason the Mamluks did in order to control those lucrative spice trading routes. But well, as you can see, they're having some problems taking out Portugal as Portugal is attempting to kind of establish lots of little fortresses all along the, basically the coast of the entire Indian Ocean. They're trying to do stuff along the Red Sea, along the uh, Arabian or Persian Gulf, and along the kind of what's it, east, western coast of the Indian subcontinent. But back to the Mediterranean. Ottoman advances continued as their army and navy coordinated to take the fortress of Castelnuovo, which is today Herzegnovi in Montenegro. Fun fact, I once camped in some kind of yard in the town where I wasn't probably supposed to be camping, but... You know, I was broke, young, and traveling, and those were good times. Uh, I quite enjoyed Herzegnovi, though I learned a harsh lesson about hitchhiking on two-lane roads in between mountains and the sea where there's no place for cars to stop. I digress. Anyways, this, the fall of modern Herzegnovi, Castelnuovo, combined with the fall of Nadine and Vrana in Croatia, really made it clear that the Ottomans had, no big surprise, won the war against Venice. They had... Besides Corfu, they'd won every other battle. They'd taken substantial Venetian territories all along the Aegean, Ionian, and Adriatic seas. And so with this prospective Ottoman victory, the European order uh, of, sort of alliances and things is rapidly reorganizing once again. Because, well, you'd see everyone kind of, well, not everyone, France, jumped ship from the Ottomans in order to kind of back the Venetians. And now the Venetians don't look like such a great organization to back. But just what did this reorganization look like? First, back in Hungary, Ferdinand and Zapolya had actually signed a secret treaty giving Zapolya two-thirds of Hungar Hungary's kind of old territory and the remaining one-third to Ferdinand. But importantly, this treaty also stated that should Zapolya die childless, Ferdinand would inherit the Hungarian throne. This is like the classic uh, Habsburg way to inherit the Hungarian throne. They're always signing these treaties saying if there are no kids, it goes to us. So far it hasn't worked, but we'll see if it works this time. Now, remember, Zapolya was an Ottoman vassal. But, well, he obviously didn't care too much about that. And this agreement really presented a substantial risk to the Ottoman position in Hungary. But fortunately for them... A year later, Zapolya married Sigismund of Poland's eldest daughter, and they had a baby. Unfortunately for Zapolya, he died nine days after that, keeping Hungary under Ottoman influence because of that nine-day-old baby uh, and the regency of the baby, which is, I mean, an amazing little bit of kind of historical happenstance, right? That, you know, once again... The Habsburgs were just so, so close to getting control of the Hungarian throne, of having, you know, this single person claim the throne, no more kind of rivals. Uh, and so they could perhaps maybe unite the Hungarian people as well as the Habsburgs to try to overthrow the Ottomans and all this stuff. But that baby was born nine days before Zapolya died. It's just, just right in there. And I mean, we could probably guess that if Zapolya had died while his wife was pregnant, well, it's quite possible something very bad would have happened to his wife. You know, she wouldn't have had the same kind of position while pregnant before actually having the baby. And so, yeah, the timing is just extraordinary. Can hardly get over it. But getting to how else. So this, we can see here now that 
the kind of geopolitical situation is shifting very quickly into Hungary, but now kind of shifting back to where it was, except with the Hungarians, sorry, the Ottomans in an even better position because now they still have a vassal, but that vassal is in diapers. And so it's even easier for them to really, you, know, you can imagine, exert control. Now in Croatia, which we've been talking about, you know, we know Croatia has been a long-standing buffer zone between the Ottomans and the Venetians in Dalmatia. But as the Ottomans have made these recent gains, that buffer zone is really gone. And so as the final treaty ending the war between the Venetians and the Ottomans was negotiated, it became clear that Venice had lost nearly all of its foreign holdings, including this vital buffer zone on the Dalmatian coast. So Venice may have survived, but it really can hardly be overstated just how vulnerable Venice was now. Because the Eastern Mediterranean was, even more than before, now completely dominated by the Ottomans. The only non-Ottoman territories in the entire real Eastern Mediterranean are Cyprus and Crete. So there's these two islands sitting in the middle of the Eastern Mediterranean, but the entire coastline, everywhere else, is Ottoman. Now, checking in in Moldavia, Suleiman had invaded in 1538. Uh, didn't really have time to mention, but like he, he jumps in there and its leader, Petru Radish, had somehow managed to really make enemies of Poland by attacking them several times and the Ottomans. And so, you know, you can imagine he was in a bad position. So the Tatars, the Ottomans, and the Poles invaded the country simultaneously in a, a very kind of Poland 1939 sort of situation. And the capital of Yashi was burned and occupied. And Petrovarish unsurprisingly fled. Specifically, he fled to Transylvania, where he apparently hid out with some fishermen. That, I guess, was a good disguise. And Stephen V was installed as the new Voivoda of Moldavia. However, within two years, somehow Petru Radish had managed to get back into Suleiman's good graces and managed to return. So, a bit odd, but what's important here is that Moldavia is weak, it is divided, it is not the kind of powerful uh, regional power that it once was. That should be quite clear here. It's not being led well, and it is, remember, still technically an Ottoman vassal. And so, with the Ottoman positions in Croatia, Moldavia, and the Eastern Mediterranean in good shape and no new developments in the ongoing war against the Safavid Persians, Suleiman now turned his attention back to Hungary. But, okay, so there's a new invasion of Hungary, but what triggered it? Well, in short, when King Zapolya died and was succeeded by his nine-day-old son, as we know, the Ottomans accepted the situation provided tribute continued to flow. However, despite the fact that this whole situation in no way violated their agreement, Ferdinand refused to accept the new situation. Well, understandable. No doubt he was furious when that baby was born. And so, well, he just said to hell with it. Uh, you know, it was a secret deal we had anyways, but I am not going to just accept the new status quo. And so, in 1541, a Habsburg army laid siege to the Hungarian capital of Buda. Suleiman set out immediately to relieve his vassal's capital and push the Habsburgs back. 
Luckily for him, the siege was terribly mismanaged, which is now becoming the sort of Habsburg tallmark. And so when Suleiman arrived, his army was easily able to defeat the besieging force. Now, quite ironically, the Ottomans were actually celebrated as the liberators of Buda. Seemed pretty weird, right? Well, during the celebrations, Ottoman troops fanned out across the city, ostensibly to admire the fortifications, see the sights, you know, the things you do when you've helped liberate a beautiful kind of capital city. But then, on a signal, the Hungarian forces throughout the entire city were quickly disarmed by the Ottomans, who then took full control of Buda. So yes, they had saved Buda from the Habsburgs, but now it was theirs. Now the infant king was still technically in control, but he had no power. The Ottomans kept him as a figurehead as they formally annexed central and eastern Hungary, while the Habsburgs continued to control kind of northern and western Hungary, remember about a third of the country, while still formally contesting the Hungarian crown. In essence, that baby king was a useful pawn which just prevented Ferdinand from rallying all Hungarians behind him to retake the country. Now, Ferdinand did return to lay siege to Pest on the opposite bank of the Danube from Buda and where I used to live uh, the very next year, but that siege also went nowhere, and it was clear that he wasn't really in a position to affect the new status quo. But while Ferdinand was trying and failing to get his revenge, his brother, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was off getting his own revenge. Because shortly after the Ottomans took Buddha, Charles set out to take, the Autom take Ottoman-controlled Algiers in northern Africa at the head of a powerful Spanish fleet, and none other than Hernán Cortés, the conqueror of Mexico. Interesting, you wouldn't expect him to enter the story, but here he is. The expedition forced, landed, and quickly surrounded the city of Algiers. However, a storm came in and damaged or sank many of the Habsburg ships, emboldening the defenders who began to venture outside the walls and attack the Habsburg soldiers directly. Charles himself was actually very nearly captured, but was saved by the Knights of Malta. Ultimately, though, as his losses mounted, Charles was forced to return to Spain. The short expedition had immense losses. 17,000 men, 300 officers, 17 large galleys, and 130 smaller ships. The Ottomans, based in North Africa, were now emboldened, and the prospect of a seaborne attack by the Habsburgs now looked remote. The Habsburgs, for their part, were now looking very weak in both the Mediterranean and Central Europe. And yet, in spite of the Ottomans' newly reinforced position in Hungary, in 1543, Radu Paisi of Vlachia, the Voivoda there, signed a secret treaty with Ferdinand. So, this is a bit peculiar, right? Vlachia has been pretty quiet. It hasn't really been in any position to oppose the Ottomans at any point. And yet, at this moment, the Voivoda decides that it is time to make a secret treaty with the Habsburgs. Honestly, why now, when the Habsburgs are looking very weak, I have no idea. But there it is. Now, the secret nature of this treaty was quite fortunate for the Wallachians because very shortly after it was signed, an exiled Wallachian anti-Ottoman boyar invaded Wallachia 
and forced Radu to flee to Ottoman-held Nikopol, Nikopolis, in Bulgaria. Within months, though, the Voivoda was back and managed to defeat the usurper. But what's really interesting here is first that the Ottomans were evidently too busy to intervene and that Radu seems very bad at picking sides because remember, he just secretly allied against the Ottomans only to be immediately overthrown by anti-Ottoman forces who we can guess had no idea that he had just done this. But taking the larger kind of view, what all this meant was that Wallachia was in no position to help Ferdinand or to change the status quo in Hungary or anywhere else. And frankly, that's very unfortunate for Ferdinand because he needed the help. By 1443, Suleiman was back in Hungary, continuing to take more and more fortresses and cities and really just shoring up the Ottoman position there. Now that he had decided to really properly annex Hungary, he needed to make sure that this really distant province was secure from the numerous enemies very close to it. Uh, When I say distant, I mean, even today, off the top of my head, I would guess if you wanted to drive from Istanbul to Budapest, which I've done just not directly, I mean, you're looking at probably at least 17, 18 hours, I would guess. And that's today. So it is important that Suleiman makes sure that Hungary is secure. So, in short, Suleiman took Estragom, which is a very important fortress city on the Danube north of Buda, Sekesvehervar, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, trying to remember my Hungarian pronunciation rules, which was the city where, hung- where Hungarian kings were traditionally crowned, and the powerful fortress of Siklos, as well as Seget. And so between all these, Suleiman really, again, kind of significantly reinforced his position in Hungary and took some of the last vital fortresses. Although, importantly, he also didn't face any major challenges while trying to take these cities. Um, But he had learned his lesson, though. He made these gains, and he did not go on to Vienna. That had gone badly the last two times, and he was content with what he had managed to do in securing Hungary. And so, within two years, Suleiman and Charles V signed a a one-year truce. And this really made sense for Suleiman because it helped him in his goal in further securing Hungary, you know, giving his troops some time to further reinforce their positions, send more soldiers, whatever they needed to do, while also allowing Suleiman to turn his focus back to the Safavids, because remember that war is still technically going on. Still, some progress was happening on the Safavid front. It wasn't all quiet. Uh, Particularly, Basra, an important city in what's now Iraq, near the Persian Gulf, was captured in 1446. Suleiman wasn't there, but his soldiers were making some gains. In the meantime, Suleiman was spending some time in Constantinople and preparing to move east and conclude a more permanent peace treaty with the Habsburgs. The treaty came in 1447 in Edirne. The Habsburgs recognized full Ottoman control of Hungary, Of course, Ferdinand and Charles controlled some portions of Hungary, so they agreed to pay the Ottomans 30,000 gold florins a year as sort of rent on this territory. Interesting arrangement. That treaty, however, left out none other than the young infant Hungarian King John. And in response over the coming years, he made an agreement with Ferdinand to abdicate the throne and allow Ferdinand to claim all of Hungary in exchange for the young king receiving lands and money elsewhere. Now, 
bear in mind, he's not really, he's still too young to negotiate this. It's John's mother who is actually negotiating it. Though, eventually she torpedoes the deal, leading to more conflict between the young king and Ferdinand over their positions and the future of Hungary. Now, it took one more year before Suleiman finally moved against the Safavids while this had been going on, but in the meantime, two important events took place in the north. First, the Grand Duchy of Moscow officially became the Tsardom of Russia under Tsar Ivan IV. So we've been talking about the Rus for centuries in this podcast, but I just want to note that as of 1447, we can now finally speak of Russia proper. Then in 1548, Sigismund the Old, King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, finally died at the very ripe old age of 81. Remember, he had been, and his son would now be, the sort of last kings of the Jagiellon dynasty, which had once controlled Hungary and Bohemia, as well as Poland and Lithuania. The death of Louis II after the Battle of Mohacz ended that portion of the dynastic line, and so now the new king of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, Sigismund II Augustus, was really all that remained of this family that once dominated all of Central Europe. But far away, in the burning deserts of Mesopotamia, Suleiman was aiming for a killing blow against the Safavids because he wanted to finally end this war, which by this point had been going on for 16 years. First, though, Suleiman's admiral in the east managed to recapture Aden, a Yemeni port controlling the entrance to the Red Sea. He took it from the Portuguese. The Ottomans had taken it 10 years previously, but it had rebelled and gone back to Portugal. Long story short, it was once again Ottoman, and now the Ottomans could really safely dominate the Red Sea. They didn't control the entire coastline, a bit of the sort of African portion they didn't control, but more or less they controlled the Red Sea, which was very important for them economically. But in Anatolian Armenia, Suleiman was again facing those scorched-earth tactics from the Safavid Shah. Still, Suleiman managed to take the vital fortress of Van, helping to better secure eastern Anatolia. He also made gains in Armenia and took fortresses in Georgia. But again, there were now kind of major battles between the Ottomans, or sorry, there were no major battles between the Ottomans and the Safavids as the campaign finished. And so, despite these Ottomans' gains, the war really kept going on. Still, there were gains elsewhere. The Ottomans captured Qatar and Bahrain in the Persian Gulf, before the arrival of a Portuguese fleet led the admiral in charge of the whole operation to flee. He was later executed for this. And back in Hungary, the king of Hungary and his mother changed their mind on that agreement with Ferdinand. And so in 1551, they formally accepted the deal, handing over the title to Ferdinand of king of Poland and receiving an immense amount of cash and some land in well, Bohemia, and then they eventually went to Poland. However, being formally recognized as King of Hungary sadly didn't really make Ferdinand capable of expelling the Ottomans from the vast majority of Hungarian territory which they directly controlled. In fact, the Ottomans, led by local commanders, not Suleiman, were still making gains there. In 1552, they laid siege to the vital Hungarian city of Eger. Defended only by a local garrison, about 10% the size of the Ottoman force. The Ottomans 
expected a repeat of their easy victories against those those kind of other Hungarian castles and fortresses, but Eger was prepared. The city's commander had contacted foreign experts and gotten their assistance in reinforcing its kind of armaments and its defenses, making the best possible use of its artillery in particular. Thus, after more than a month of intense and bloody fighting, the Ottomans were actually forced to withdraw. Yet, this still was not the main focus for Suleiman, who was now, in 1553, engaging in a third invasion of Safavid territory, hoping to finally bring that stupidly long war to a close. But again, the results were inconclusive, with the Ottomans and Safavids trading possession of the eastern Anatolian city of Erzurum. Despite the stalemate, however, Suleiman managed to finally push for peace. The 1555 Peace of Amasya set a new border. Armenia and Georgia were now divided between the two powers. The Ottomans kept their gains in Iraq, giving them direct access to the Persian Gulf. Lastly, a buffer zone was established along much of the border, in which fortresses were destroyed. Now what that meant was that the Ottomans and Safavids were settling into a more permanent border. With the destruction of the Mamluks decades earlier, this meant that the Ottomans didn't really face any more rivals in the east, with the exception of the Portuguese, but obviously they're not quite the same as a land power. In addition, besides more trading fortresses along the seacoast, there weren't many more logical places for the Ottomans to expand eastward. The Romans and the Byzantines had both ended up with quite similar borders to what the Ottomans had now, showing that for all these empires, this was really, really kind of the logical extent of their territories in the east. For Europe, this was bad news. The Habsburg attempts to ally with the Safavids may have succeeded, kind of, but the dreams of a coordinated two-front attack really putting some pressure on the Ottomans obviously never materialized. Ultimately, the Safavids never really went on the offensive or put much pressure on the Ottomans. And so Suleiman was able to easily balance wars on both fronts for 22 years without really breaking a sweat. Now, though, he could devote his full attention to Europe and the Mediterranean. Next time, we'll see just what Suleiman does with this new focus. Then, as this season comes to a close, I'm going to talk about many of the longer-term trends which have occurred over the nearly two centuries that we've covered this year, including what happened to Bulgarians and Roma people in the Ottoman Empire. As always, write if you have any questions you'd like me to answer on those kind of wrap-up episodes. And, well, that's it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And, well, like us on iTunes... Uh, Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast on bghistorypodcast.com and check us out on Facebook. In the meantime, well, see you all later.